this morning we get to have we get to have a chance to hear again from uh, Sean Little. Sean spoke last week, and he's uh, kind of been in a little mini series here that he started last week, and he's going to finish up today. And I'm very excited to have Sean speak. Actually, I want to say a word of prayer for Sean this morning before he speaks. And then uh, after I say a word of prayer, if you guys would just show your appreciation to Sean. Let, let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here this morning. And we focus our eyes now on Jesus Christ. And we're reminded that what Christ did on the cross changes everything. It changes, it changes our stories. It changes the world's story. It changes the future. And it even redeems the past. Lord, as we focus on you now and what you did on the cross for us, pray that you would change us, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Pray that you would, through the power of your word, pray that you would penetrate deeply into our lives. Give us a sense of hope. Give us a vision for what you want to do in our lives. Speak to us today. Lord, I pray for Sean that as he speaks this morning, that you would speak with, that he would speak your words with great clarity. Lord, I, I recognize that as people come into this room today, they come in with all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of experiences, um, all sorts of hurts, wounds, joys, things that they're anticipating, positive and negative. Lord, I pray that you would speak into all of those this morning. We thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen. Hey, would you please show your appreciation to my friend, Sean Little? Thank you, sir. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? I always think that that's a peculiar question to ask when you're asking a bunch of people. You can't really... Answer that individually to me, so you holler good, so I hope that you guys are good, I hope that you're well. Um, If you were here last week, I'm really thankful you came back. Uh, I realized that I preached, especially after the sermon went live on the website for an hour and 11 minutes, uh, which is about 100% longer than a normal sermon here at City Church. So I'm conscious of that. Uh, I can't promise that I will deliver something much shorter, but it's a goal of mine. Uh, to do so. So, uh, this week has been involved uh, for all of us. Obviously, there's a Thanksgiving celebration behind us, and for some people, that's good news, and for other folks, getting together with family is not such good news. So, we bring that with us, obviously, like Jeff said, and we were talking uh, a minute in the back. Um, We all carry such different things with us at all times. I had a conversation with a young man just this morning uh, that prompted this idea that I was sharing with Jeff. It's no small thing to come to church on Sunday morning for you or for me uh, because there's this notion that when things aren't perfect, we need to stay away from God. Uh, And I would say when things aren't perfect, that's the very moment that we need to draw near to God. And church doesn't have a monopoly on him. Uh, But I'm just thankful that you guys chose to be here this morning. Um, I'm a a person just like you. So we are looking to the text. We're not looking to Sean, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, And there's also a wait this week, just as I've kind of had a pulse on uh, Ferguson, Missouri. That's been fascinating to watch and to consider and to read. Um, Last week I talked about division. uh, And we saw that theme throughout 
this week as well. So whether we agree or disagree with the verdict that was cast in uh, Ferguson, that's obviously another reminder of the great divisions that we live in. Uh, Whether we celebrated Black Friday or followed along with the hashtag and decided to boycott Black Friday, uh, those are two divisions. And whether we celebrated Happy Thanksgiving or we partook in the National Day of Mourning, again, there's always divisions going on everywhere around us. And regardless of where you find yourself in relationship to those issues, whether I I stated them or I didn't, uh, we see very little middle ground amidst the divisions that are always going on around us. And again, we love our divisions, we live in our divisions, we protect our divisions, and we fight to justify our divisions. And while none of us like to be determined by those divisions, uh, we so often act that way with one another. So one of the mainline stories of Ferguson, Missouri, this week was that white folk were saying a specific thing about black folk. And black folk were saying a specific thing about white folk. And now if you took any person in either of those groups, if I as a white person said, well, all black people act this way. I I certainly wouldn't appreciate if black folks said all white people act this way, right? So even though I wouldn't appreciate it or like it or encourage that, I still act that way to people on the other side of the divide, even though I would not want people to act that way to me. Uh, And this morning, like I said last week, there's truly only one division that exists among all of us. And, And that's simply before God... Are you, am I, declared righteous or am I declared unrighteous? And, and the, the scandalous nature of the gospel is that if you are a believer in Jesus, you are declared righteous before God. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you are declared unrighteous. And again, like I said last week, while all of us, apart from believing, are unrighteous, some of us are self-righteous. And now a a word just to clarify my terms. The self-righteous use their religion, their religious activity as a means to justification. So what that means is that they would stand before God and say, because of my religious activity, I'm a good person. Uh, As Frank Sinatra said, and then Jay-Z did a rendition, I did it my way, right? I would stand before God because of my religious activity and say, I did it my way. I don't need your help. I don't need your forgiveness. You need to merit me for my goodness. You need to give me what I deserve, which is not eternal punishment, but eternal paradise. So that's what, how, how uh, a few examples of how the self-righteous might act because of their religious activity. And now we looked last week at the, un, the, the non-religious, unrighteous folk on this side of the stage So this week, we're going to look at the religious, self-righteous folk. And again, what we're considering is the equal invitation of the gospel to both groups of people. Uh, And this morning, we're considering it to the self-righteous in the religious division. So will you turn with me to John uh, chapter 2? We're picking up where we left off in verse 12, and we'll go through verse 25. Now that's discouraging to some folk because that's more verses than last week and again two quick notes i won't go at such length john is a human being just like us and i sort of communicated 
some of, of, of his humanity. Uh, so if you want to check out the podcast from last week to get more detail on that. But we can't miss that when we come to the text. We can't miss that even though it's the, the holy book, it's the holy scriptures, uh, the people who God used to make this book are exactly like us. And all of our shortcoming and all of our failure. And John is certainly in there with us. And then also the account itself. So that was John. And now for the account itself, the gospel account. A man named Ravi Zacharias once said this little thing. And and this is where the best stuff happens when people don't do it on purpose. But they just say it in passing. He said, intent is prior to content. Right? So if you see a pretty girl at a bar. And I know we're at a church, maybe that doesn't translate, but go with me. You see a pretty girl at a bar, and you want to go and say hey to her, right? Now, every pretty girl at a bar knows that when the guy says hey to her, he has an intention, right? So intent is prior to content. John has an intention in his gospel and what he's writing. And his intention is that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. John 20, 31. That's his intention in writing this. His intent is prior to his content. So, the question this morning to the unrighteous and to the self-righteous is, do you believe? Let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 12, and you can follow along with me. After he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover over the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But... He was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for He himself knew what was in man. And now, an interesting little factoid as we deal with this part of John's gospel. uh, Seldom is the exact same occurrence accounted for in all four of the gospels. And this uh, cleansing of the the temple as it's been headed is one of those examples that that exist in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to pull up a slide real quick. And if you want to jot down where this interaction occurs in the other Gospels, I would encourage you, take this stuff with you. Don't only consider the Scriptures on Sunday mornings. But this is where this account is in the other Gospels. So please consider those things. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now before we get to unpacking this, I want to pray um, real quick. So pray with me. 
Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift of life that you gave us a today. Um, and today is good for some and bad for others, but it's a gift to all. Uh, we thank you for your scripture, ultimately that it exists outside of us, uh, that I don't have a, a, a hold on it just because I'm the guy up front, um, but that you exist within your pages and your character is made known and your Holy Spirit is active as we consider your word. Uh, Lord, please make this time profitable uh, as we consider the scripture uh, for me for those in this room, and for the people in our lives as a consequence. Uh, For our good, for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we'll start with verse 12 and 13. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Following the first sign that Jesus did to manifest his glory, the making of water into wine that we looked at last week, Jesus leaves Cana and goes to Capernaum. And that, to me, is just such a reminder of something that I said last week, which is Jesus, while he is fully human, he's so unlike us because he did this miraculous thing. And then instead of sticking around and taking pictures and selfies and signing autographs, he leaves, right? In, in the exact moment that the attention could have been his. The distance from Cana to Capernaum is a full day's walk. Uh, it's about 20 miles. And if Cana to Capernaum is a full day's walk, the next walk that we see Jesus take from Capernaum to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover would have been a four or five day walk because Capernaum to Jerusalem was four, or I'm sorry, 80 to 100 miles. But Jesus goes up to Jerusalem after hanging out in Capernaum for a couple of days. And he goes there again with an intention to celebrate Passover. Now, the Passover celebration, and I know you guys have dealt with this in in the last series, uh, was a remembrance of God's mercy. In general, when Passover was celebrated, it generally had to do with Israel's exodus from Egypt, right? Coming out of hundreds of years of slavery, that's sure a reason to be happy. And then specifically, uh, Passover was celebrated for the salvation or the saving of Israel's firstborn sons from the blood that was put on the doorpost. So there was much to be celebrated in Passover. And then also, as much as it was a spiritual holiday, in a sense, it was also a national holiday, kind of like Thanksgiving, right? So we can bring all of this meaning into our holidays, which we certainly don't want to miss, uh, but at the same time, it's good to get together with friends and to eat too much, right? So, so we have that in Passover. It's a spiritual holiday. At the same time, it's a national holiday. And the walk that Jesus is going to take, that four to five day, 80 to 100 mile walk to Jerusalem, represents a, a greater Jewish pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you have a lot of Jewish people in the region, uh, throughout the region, that are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate The Passover. So within the the worship holiday, the spiritual holiday, you certainly have Jews who are going there to worship. That's their intention. And then you also have just national Jews who are going there to party. Is that bad to say about Passover? So they're going there to party because everyone's getting together. The whole family's getting together. My friends who I only see once a year during holiday are getting together. So it's very human, right? Because we know what it's like to get together on Thanksgiving in part to celebrate maybe history, 
but also just to get together with our people to celebrate humanity. And now we'll look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus goes to the temple. He arrives in Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. Religion, the formal worship of God, is not inherently a bad thing. And that's something that the life of Jesus teaches us. So often Jesus and religion are juxtaposed, but religion is not inherently bad. We see this because Jesus is acting, he's behaving as a religious Jew. He's observing the Jewish religion. Again, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he goes to the temple. And now Jesus, his singular ability to fulfill the law, to perfectly meet God's requirements should be an encouragement to us this morning, specifically as we think about the equal invitation of the gospel to the self-righteous, because even in our self-righteousness, even in our religious activity, if we yearn, if we long, and if we perform, we still fall short. But our Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, didn't fall short in his religious activity, so he can offer the equal invitation of the gospel, even to people who are very, very religious. He is the fulfillment of everything we're trying to be and we fail to be in our religion. Now, thinking about our religion, just a quick thought, the danger in our doing of religion, the danger is thinking that doing religion is how we are declared righteous. I want to be clear this morning. I'm not opposed to religion. I'm not the young dude who loves Jesus and hates religion. That's not who I am. That's not where I'm coming from. But there's a great danger in the doing of our religion in that we may think that the doing of our religion is how we are declared righteous. And just to be clear here, that's not the case. In our, in our best intention, in our best activity, we still fall short of God's glory. We are declared righteous based on singularly our belief in Jesus. Back to verse 14. So, Jesus goes to the temple to worship, and what does he find? He finds sellers of animals, right? Because sacrifices took place in the temple. And pilgrims, right, as they make the journey to mom's house, they might not have had room for a goat in their, in their carry-on. They might not have had room for a sheep in their luggage, right? So you have this big pilgrimage of people going to Jerusalem, some going to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Maybe I couldn't bring my sheep with me as we we walked the the narrow road. So you have sellers of animals who have them there for the sake of sacrifices. And then you have money changers. And I always thought that these dudes were just like the cash register guy, right? So there's the product in aisle three, and then check out before you leave the front door of the temple. Those, that's, that's the money changer. Uh, but it's interesting, as I studied, I found out that these people who were making their pilgrimage would bring with them foreign currency. So the money changers um, are, are exchanging foreign currency to local currency, in part to pay for the animals, but then also in part for a, a tithe that was made, a tax that was given by obedient Jews to Um, to the temple each year, forgive me. 
And the local currency was more valuable. So it's kind of like a, a British pound compared to a U.S. dollar or a U.S. dollar compared to a peso. So the Jews are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they're bringing foreign currency with them. They didn't bring their animal to sacrifice. And you have savvy businessmen that are taking advantage of this opportunity. They're not just there out of the goodness of their heart, right? And this is a reminder, again, of the humanity of Scripture. There's a money-making opportunity. I was talking to my brother-in-law this week, right around Thanksgiving, and he said, well, we're about to go get our Christmas tree. Isn't it so funny? It's kind of as soon as Thanksgiving rolls around, there's all these pop-up shops for Christmas trees. And it's not because necessarily people are in the holiday spirit, it's because we want to buy trees. So they're there to sell the trees. So we see the same thing. There's a seasonal opportunity. There's a seasonal market, just like a Christmas tree market, for these animals and for these money changers. So you have savvy businessmen looking to take advantage of the seasonal opportunity of the market. Does that make sense? Okay. So we'll look at slide 15. Um, I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. A house of trade or a house of business, a place of business. So you have that seasonal business being conducted by these savvy businessmen. They're taking advantage of two things. One, they're taking advantage of the very system that the Lord has established for worship of himself. And then they're taking advantage of the people, making a profit off of their poverty. Now, the Lord afforded the people, Israel, an opportunity to worship him in the sacrifice of animals. And people so often separate this idea of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. They say, well, he's such a wild God in the Old Testament, and he's wrathful, and he's angry, and he's just merciless, and kills all kinds of people, and he's real responsive. If you do something bad, he strikes you down. And then that's the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament, my God, right? Because we don't want to deal with the consequences of that stuff. The God of the New Testament, he's graceful, and he's patient. And he's kind, and he doesn't deal out where we deserve. I, I, don't, I don't see that distinction. I understand it. But even in something like the system that he set up, the sacrificial system that allows people to worship him, there is great, great grace in that. The Lord did not have to allow people to draw near to him, to restore fellowship with him, to draw near to him, and to worship him. He didn't have to allow people to do that. So even in the sacrificial system, I see great grace and and the character of the God in the New Testament. Because through sacrifice, as Hebrews 9.22 tells us, uh, sacrifice is necessary Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is allowing sinful people, just like you and I this morning, the opportunity to draw near to him. And at that time, it was through sacrifice. It's still through sacrifice, but that's been made. So this notion of God in the Old Testament is different than God in the New Testament, I I don't think that that's true. The sacrificial system is all grace. So we know that Jesus is making a a whip of cords. And I can only imagine what he's thinking. I mean, how long does it take to make a whip of cords? Anybody make one? Can you tell me how long it takes? I don't... 
So how long does it take to make a whip of cords? And that's kind of peculiar because if he was there and there were people set up selling things, I wonder if he walked over and bought the material for the cords that he was about to make. I mean, certainly he didn't have cords in his pocket or the handle. So I wonder if he purchased those things. And while he sees all of this activity going on, I wonder if he just grabbed a seat and started putting together that whip of cords. And maybe he was thinking about a few things that our scriptures tell us about about a bigger picture. Maybe this was going through his mind when he was making the whip of cords. Maybe the words of John the Baptist as he looked upon the sacrificial system that was being taken advantage of and the people who were being taken advantage of. Did he, did he recall the words of John the Baptist? Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he saw this contradiction because they're selling animals. Maybe he was thinking into the future that for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe he saw a better sacrifice, a more whole sacrifice. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Maybe he was considering that you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Maybe Jesus had this picture of what he was going to do in his sacrifice as he looked at this broken and, and perverted system. And then he stands up, cord in hand, with those thoughts in mind perhaps, and he gets to work. Jesus going to work, boy. So he drives out the sellers of animals and the sheep and the oxen. And I wonder if he was thinking as he was driving out those animals used for sacrifice, I am the Lamb of God that was sent to take away the sin of the world. And I wonder when he was dumping over those money changers, if he was thinking the offer of salvation is free. So let me pour out This money. And this is all speculation. I wonder as he poured the coins, was he thinking that he would soon be pouring his blood to pay for that free offer of salvation? Again, that's all just speculation. And in addition to John's account of what we just read, John says that Jesus told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. But interestingly, Matthew and Mark account that Jesus overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. And it's interesting to distinguish that even though he flipped over the seats of the people who were selling the pigeons, he tells them, take the pigeons away. And you guys are probably like, what does this have to do with anything? Why are you talking about pigeons? So he flips over their seats and at the same time he says, take these pigeons away. And that reminds me that the pigeons are unlike people. The pigeons are unlike sheep or oxen. Because they can't evacuate on their own. So he takes the cord whip and he drives people out. And people who are on their feet can kind of rush out. They can evacuate on their own. And then he flips the the seats of the people selling pigeons. But he tells them, take out the pigeons because they're caged. Right? The pigeons are caged. And this might just be a small, subtle thing that caught my attention. But it affirms Jesus' character that we're told about in Isaiah 42, that a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus is caring and compassionate and calculated. So even though verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, Jesus' zeal was without violence. 
And we see that as he holds back on these pigeons. He didn't desire to hurt the pigeons. He wasn't looking to hurt anyone or anything. He drove them out to cleanse it, knocks over their seats, tells them to take the pigeon. He didn't want to knock the pigeons to the ground and hurt them. His zeal is without violence. And that has sort of racked my brain this week as I've looked at both sides of the division in Ferguson this week. Because his zeal was without violence. Our zeal is so seldom without violence. They kind of go hand in hand. Again, both sides of the division. The zeal of Jesus was without violence. And again, we get violent in our zealousness because what our divisions mean to us, right? So we defend them and we uphold them. We want to justify them. And if we need to go hands, if we need to fight somebody to prove that our side of the division is right, we're so willing to do that. All the while, Scripture clearly proves to us that even that which Jesus was angered by, he didn't become violent toward. In fact, the very thing that he was angered by, he allowed violence to happen to him. Jesus is angered by self-righteousness, by perversion of pure religion. He doesn't get violent towards it. He takes the penalty of that error onto himself. He allows violence to be put onto him for that which angers him. Verse 18 through 20. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? As we can see in the response of these Jewish worshipers, self-righteous religion blinds. It blinds. When we use our religion to stand before God and say, I'm a good person, tell me I'm a good person, we become blinded. We can't see the Christ because of custom. And the same exact thing is happening here with the Jewish worshipers. They can't see the Christ who is in front of them because he doesn't satisfy their customs. Back to verse 18 through 20. Now, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he's speaking of himself. He's giving a glimpse into the reality that he himself is the temple. He is the dwelling place of God. He is where the perfect sacrifice is made once for all. He is where men and women can draw near to God once and for all to worship him. Have you drawn near to God in Jesus, through Jesus? And interestingly, as he's asked for a sign here, Jesus was asked for a sign elsewhere. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish for you to show us a sign. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, Jesus, when he talks about these three days, when he answers the question of a sign elsewhere, he's considering looking forward to his resurrection. It'll take me three years to build this temple. He's looking forward to, I'm I'm sorry, three days. He's looking forward to his resurrection, verse 21 and 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Resurrection is the entire power and the entire pinnacle of the Christian faith. 
It's the cornerstone of it. What the Christian faith is built on is the literal bodily resurrection of a man from the dead. It's a wild concept. Us, if if there's a majority of Christians in here, that may be something that we're familiar with. But apart from the resurrection, here's what the Apostle Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished or they've died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Apostle Paul says, if we only have hope in this life, if Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead, literally, bodily, we are to be pitied. What we believe is pitiful. What we come here to celebrate, if Jesus didn't resurrect, is a pitiful, pitiful thing. Three people came to mind as I thought about the resurrection of the dead. First, my brother. For those of you who don't know my story, which I don't expect you to, uh, when I was 22 years old, my older brother, huge influence, my dad, my best friend, obviously my older brother. Uh, when I was 22, Scott believed on Jesus. He believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He became a Christian. He got the gift of eternal life. Eight weeks later, he died of an overdose. And that was just, it bugged me out in that season. And a lot of self-righteous people who use their religion to, religion to stand before God and hear God say, I'm a good person. They told me, well, your brother died in a sinful way. Your brother died in sin. He died doing something bad. So we're really not sure where he's at. We don't know where his standing was with the Lord. And and our standing, whether we're declared righteous or unrighteous, is dependent on one thing. Do we believe in the Christ? And since my brother believed in the Christ, he was declared righteous even though he died of an overdose. So because the resurrection is true, my brother is not perished. He's not dead. So I have great hope, right, that I will see my brother soon. The resurrection is the pinnacle and the power of the Christian faith. And I wonder what the word of the resurrection could do in Ferguson, Missouri. As Michael Brown has died, as several other people die, as as America will continue to be divided over race. I wish that we could get around this idea that we all have to die. I'm not justifying what happened to Michael Brown. But there's a greater reality beyond our death that there is a resurrection that we are enabled to take part in. There is a day where we will, will all die if we are believers in Jesus. We too will be resurrected. And then just this week, it's been... Uh, a trip. Both of my wife's grandparents, grandma on one side, grandpa on the other side, went into ICU kind of right around Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving was a trip. And I was texting Jeff like, dude, I'm, I'm going to get you the stuff. I'm just struggling. It's been a rough week. I'm, I'm, you know, sending them sermon notes and slides and stuff. Uh, so we were in the hospital a lot this week. And at some point, I talked to my wife's grandpa, and that's always a sensitive moment. You don't know what to say to people in the hospital. You kind of just want to be an ear for them. You want them to know that you love them, but, oh, what do you say when they're all hooked up? He had just had his leg amputated. It wasn't the intention when he went to the ICU. They thought it was a back problem, but it had been misdiagnosed, and it ended up being an infection anyway. So his leg was amputated in the middle of his thigh, and I talked to him. I said, how you feeling? He said, I'm feeling all right. He said, I prayed 
and I guess God didn't hear my prayer. I think he's punishing me for something. And that just like, I wonder if I'm ever preach without crying. It broke my heart because that is the weight that people are carrying around. Some of you have carried that weight in here this morning to think that God wants to punish you for your humanity. To think that God has poured out his punishment once and for all on his son. And still we carry around this perverted idea or we push it on people that God also wants to punish you. He did not punish his son once and for all to pour punishment on you. That makes no sense. So I tried to encourage him with that idea. I I hope it's an encouragement to him. But the idea is that God has poured out punishment on Christ once and for all. And he has resurrected. We will be resurrected. We are all facing death. Resurrection is accessible to all of us. Again, resurrection is the power and the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Not only has Jesus kept the perfect command of God, which none of us can, but he's conquered death, which none of us can. Which is, again, why Jesus is uniquely qualified to offer the equal invitation of the gospel to the unrighteous and to the self-righteous. And then there's this note that they believed the scripture. And that's such an interesting distinction to me because in verse 11 that we looked at last week, following Jesus' first miracle, his disciples believed him. That was in verse 11. And then here in verse 22... Following his resurrection, his disciples believed the scripture. And that was a word to me this week. I've believed in Jesus for 11 years, quite some time. But there, I mean, often, I see something in the scripture and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I buy into it. And maybe it's just because I'm pushing back on it because it makes me uncomfortable. Or maybe it's because I can't believe how extravagant the promises of God are. So I don't always believe in the scripture, even though I believe in the Christ. So that's an encouragement to me first and to you as well. Believe in the Christ, but also bow a knee to the truth of scripture when it challenges you and when it calls you into something greater. To believe the Christ and to believe the scripture is profitable for us. Verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs... That he was doing. So Passover is, is eight days long. The first two days and the last two days have feasts, kind of full holidays. They shut down small business Saturday. They shut down local businesses and they really party hard on the first two and last two days. And then the interim kind of business goes back. There's still an, an observation of Passover, but it's not as fully committed as the first and last two days. So I think it's on the last two days, but either on the first or the last, during the feast, sometime that's when this is going on. As we consider the cross-references of what's happening during this feast time, we're given an inclination of how Jesus interacted with those many people who were believing in him, believing on him. We'll pull those up. The first inclination that we're given is from Matthew twenty-one fourteen. It's how Jesus is interacting with the many that are believing on him. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's something that we see in the cross reference. We'll look at Mark. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him, to destroy Jesus. Because they feared him. Because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Look at Luke. 
the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And as we go back to verse 23, those rejected, pushed off, cast down, cast away by people who practice self-righteous religion, so often run to Jesus. So often run to Jesus. So you have these scribes and these Pharisees and these chief men among the people. And what they're watching in their little corner is their monopoly slip away. They see all the people going to Jesus. And like anyone who's losing power, right? They're like, we got to pick a fight. We got to get this power back. And they're just really about it. They're about it in a way that I'm not about it. Because when I have an enemy, I would never think, I'm going to kill him. But that's what they think of Jesus. They say, we need to destroy him. Because they see the power slipping out of their hands as all the people go to him. Because the self-righteous practicers of religion push away broken people, hurting people, dirty people, unrighteous people. Yet Jesus bids them. Come to me. People are flocking to Jesus. And that's in part what makes the gospel so unappealing to people who practice religion to be declared self-righteous. Because they're made equal with all people. Even in their religious observation. Even in their religious efforts and their goodness and their pureness and their cleanliness. The gospel says everyone is the same. Even the people that you think you're better than. Verse 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Last week I mentioned an interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees dealing with the rites of purification. Hopefully Amidst 71 minutes of preaching, you remember that. You remember me talking about rites of purification? Uh, So Jesus and his disciples were at the market. I talked about Walmart. And they come back in and they're joined by some Pharisees. And the Pharisees, kind of maybe under their breath, are like, yo, why are the disciples not washing their hands, right? Because when you come back from Walmart, you got to wash your hands before they eat. So then boys go up in there, they're hungry, they just start grubbing, they didn't wash their hands, and the Pharisees are criticizing them because they didn't pay mind to the Jewish rites of purification, they didn't clean their hands. Jesus ends up telling the Pharisees, you're hypocrites, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him, you worship him in vain, you teach his doctrine, the commands of men, you abandon the commands of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he goes on to say, hear me all of you and understand, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I don't mean to be offensive when I say this. Please hear me in that. A word to the self-righteous. For those who practice their religion to stand before God and to hear a judgment of you are good. You are your own problem. What makes us dirty is not on the outside of us. What makes us dirty comes from within. The things that defile us are not from outside of us. They are from the, the, the broken factory of our hearts. That's where we are made unclean from our hearts. A quick illustration, and I'm about to the end, so you can roll your shoulders back, sit back comfortably in your seat. A uh, quick illustration. I read a book recently, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. There's two short paragraphs I want to read to illustrate this idea that that which defiles us comes from inside, not outside. So we'll look into that. So this is what Emerson says. He's talking about travel, but stick with me. He who travels to be amused or to get somewhat which he does not carry travels away from himself and grows old even in youth among old things. In Thebes and Palmyra, his will and mind have become old and dilapidated as they. He carries ruins to ruins. Here's the next thought. Traveling is a fool's paradise. Our first journeys discover to us the indifference of places. Indifference of places. At home, I dream that at Naples, at Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I pack my trunk. I embrace my friends. I embark on the sea. And at last, I wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical that I fled from. I seek the Vatican and the palaces. I affect to be intoxicated with sights and suggestions, but I am not intoxicated. My giant goes with me wherever I go. Two thoughts onto the next slide. Two phrases that really stick out. He carries ruins to ruins. My giant goes with me wherever I go. Unfortunately, I read this on my way over to Europe. Uh, And I was going to Europe for a month of work and my wife was at home and I read, the fool leaves his house. The fool goes elsewhere to find which is inside of himself. He carries ruins to ruins when we go elsewhere. Why? Because the ruins are not outside of us. We are ruined. There's something fundamentally inside of us that is broken. My giant goes with me wherever I go. We can't escape our own brokenness. We can't escape it through success. We can't escape it through money. We can't escape it through drugs, through relationship, through sex, through promotion. We can't escape it through our religion. To the self-righteous who uses their religion to stand before God justified, you are your own problem. We are our own problems. But the equal invitation of the gospel goes to the unrighteous and to the self-righteous. Apart from believing in the gospel, we're declared unrighteous, all of us. Some of us are deceived into becoming self-righteous. But again, the equal invitation of gospel, listen to these words of Jesus, and with this, I close. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whether you consider yourself or you have been treated as unrighteous, as non-religious, or whether you consider yourself as a religious and therefore self-righteous person, the equal invitation of the gospel is for all of us. Because apart from believing it, all of us are unrighteous. My encouragement to you is to consider the equal invitation of the gospel, to consider the claims of Jesus, not only to believe on him once for eternal life, but to continue to believe in him and to follow him for abundant life. The offer of Jesus does not end when we believe in him. It just begins. Let me pray and we'll be finished up. Uh, Lord, you, you offer us more than our small hands can receive, than our small lives can inherit, uh, and still you offer. Uh, please, Lord, keep us from the foolishness of thinking that because your offer is grand, that we do not qualify to receive it. Uh, Lord, I pray that our thoughts of you and ourselves in this world will be established not through what is going on outside of your world, but your, your word, but what exists within your word. Establish us in the truth of your scripture, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that even though we are broken and we are our own problems and what defiles us comes from inside, you do not give us a religion to try to perfect ourselves, but you fulfilled the law. And in your fulfillment, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, you have invited us unto yourself. You have fulfilled the law. You have paid the cost of sin. And you tell us to come. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the equal invitation of the gospel to the unrighteous and to the self-righteous. It's in your name we pray. Amen.